0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tara Parker-Pope, editor of the Wellbeing Desk here at The Post. Most of you know my guest, Robin Arzon, as the lead instructor of Peloton. I'm delighted to say Robin is joining me today to talk about movement and how movement has influenced her life and how it can influence yours too. Robin, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so nice to see you. I have to tell you, there's so much excitement here um, about you and I, you have an amazing, uh, loyal and devoted following. Um, Why do you think that is? Why do you think you have so many fans out there?
0: I think you'd have to ask them. Uh, I'm certainly grateful to build community around things that are meaningful to me, you know, movement, uh, creativity, I think swagger. (laughs) That's probably a buzzword that I use quite a bit. Uh, Yeah, no, you'd have to ask them. I think I I do. I practice what I preach and I also preach what I practice. So hopefully that resonates with folks. So why do you think it is that you were
1: able to connect with people sort of in all, all levels of, ab- of ability and ambition, you know, there are some people who are just starting out who might be very intimidated about working out. Can you talk a little bit about how you motivate people who are really new to fitness?
0: Oh, gosh. I think, you know, I wasn't an athlete growing up, so I definitely have been there. I, I know what it feels like to... Um... I was petrified of gym class as a kid. I would do absolutely anything to not, you know, be in that lineup to be picked for whatever, kickball. Um, So I think some of us have memories of that and it lingers. So as adults, when we're writing the narrative of our next chapter, whether that includes movement, and I hope it does, can sometimes feel a little bit paralyzing when that's infused with fear. And uh, so my approach certainly is to widen the aperture of of who thinks movement is possible for them. It took me, gosh, I was already running marathons, I think, before I would, I was very reticent to call myself a runner. And I don't want that to happen to anybody else. You know, that's one of the reasons I wrote my first book, Shut Up and Run, because I wanted to unpack and dismantle what felt very complicated to me as a new runner. So I always tell folks, you know, start small, like take nibbles of hustle. My runs, run, walk, jog, an amalgam of, I guess, all those things, um, they were eight minutes, nine minutes, 10 minutes. You know, I really started very humbly and um, intentionally, but humbly. And, you know, th- that those little iterative steps can amount to a lot. So I say start small, and consistency is much more important than intensity, right? So you don't have to go from a novice to marathon. Uh, I would rather see somebody be consistent three, four times a week in whatever they choose to do movement-wise um, and really start to develop that appetite and curiosity for themselves. So I was really interested to learn that you
1: had a career as a lawyer. So you went to law school, you took the LSAT, you you put all that years of effort into uh into that. How do you go from being a lawyer to being Robin that we see today?
0: <laughs> I think there're thousands of inflection points uh that would be the answer to that question. But uh, yeah, I practiced as a corporate litigator in New York City for almost 8 years and um it actually laid the foundation for a lot of what I do as an entrepreneur and as a business person now. But um I felt like I was leading a divorced existence. You know, I was doing the classic corporate 80 hours a week. Um, and I think I still work just as much. I'm just, I love what I do. So it's a little different. But um, the that feeling like I was counting down the hours of the day, the minutes of the day until I could have – 15 minutes or 20 minutes to run in Central Park, I could see a sliver of Central Park from my office in Midtown. And, um, I thought, wow, I'm so enlivened by running, by cycling, by lifting weights. How do I make that my, how do I make my passion, my purpose? Um, and I, you know, I planted lots of seeds to see what would sprout. I actually had a 10-minute calendar appointment, a recurring calendar appointment for 10 minutes a day every single morning before the partners were in the office. And th- those were really the only 10 minutes I spent some days, many days, um, kind of plotting and planning and asking those reflexive questions of what do I do next and how am I going to get there? And it was though that 10-minute ca- calendar appointment for two years that really allowed me to pave the way to what I'm doing now. I find that fascinating. So do you still use that trick? Do you still schedule 10 minutes for yourself to start your day? Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I've architected a life where I have a lot more than 10 minutes, you know, for my workouts and and for myself. That was important to me. It was like, I'm not living for two hours on the weekend or for, you know, 30 minutes after work. Like I want to, I want my dreams to get me up before my alarm clock. So that is my life now, and I'm very grateful for that, but that was also a lot of intentional choices to make sure that I was architecting that life. Um, But the 10 minute a day rule is I use it all the time. You know, sometimes I'll set a timer. You know, we have that thing that's like, oh, I gotta get this to my accountant or I gotta do this mundane task. I gotta schedule the dentist appointment. And I will literally set a timer for 10 minutes and be like, just do what you can do in 10 minutes. And sometimes, oftentimes the task is nearly done. That ten-minute bite-sized chunk of hustle really goes a long way. And um, you know, when I'm not feeling, you know, believe it or not, you know, professional athletes and and trainers, they often have t- days where they don't feel like training either, and they don't want to do their workouts. So I'll give myself permission. I'll say, just do ten minutes. And if you're not feeling it, you can hit the eject button. And 100% of the time, I complete my workout. So that ten minutes is enough to gain momentum for a lot of areas in our lives.
1: I think that's really useful advice. I hope people remember that and and use it because I think that, you know, when we talk about making change, sometimes we can be very overwhelmed, right? It can feel very big and very scary and breaking it down into, you call it, what do you call it? Nibbles of hustle.
0: Nibbles of hustle.
1: <laughs> it's a great, it's a great, it's a great uh, tip and a great way to approach, uh, you know, big things and big change. So you've talked about, you've spoken about the space of movement and that that was a priority for you. What what does that actually mean, the space of movement? What does that mean to you?
0: I, I mean, developing a movement practice can take a lot of different, you know, that, that, that can be a lot of things to a lot of different people. For me, it's carving out that time to lift weights, to run, to teach at Peloton, of course. And that enable it. I mean, the energy that I gain, of course, we're expending energy in those workouts, but the energy that I gain on the other side allows me to be who I am in the world. It's a way that I protect my peace. It's a way that, uh, you know, I metabolize stress and the day and, you know, the stuff, the gunk from that builds up from the day and the week. And, um, it is really foundational, not only to who I am, you know, as a mom and a wife, but as a business person. So,
1: you know, you have a a lot of uh, interesting things in your past and in your life, but you did go through a really traumatic experience when you were very young. Are you comfortable sharing that and talking about um, that trauma and how it shaped sort of where
0: you, you know, the path that it set you on? Yeah, I mean, that now, you know, having decades of distance from it, I right. can draw on that experience and find strength. You know, it took me a, years and years to of uh, processing trauma, you know, being held at gunpoint. is not something, I mean, I like still remember what gun metal feels like on my temple. Right. So like you, there is a visceral thing that yeah, I don't know if you ever get rid of, but it dulls for sure. And for me running was it. You know, I sat in therapist chairs. I did all the things that were recommended to me. And, you know, of course, I'm sure that was healthy and helpful. But for me, the inflection point was picking up a pair of running shoes and running through it. And it's, I didn't know movement could be a form of medicine. I really didn't because I truly hadn't run a mile before I was 20 something years old. And the, the way that I was able to take my own power back and then build on it was um I thought it, I thought I mean yeah I love I love talking about it because for me that was that was when the game changed and I started to kind of be, have big be the main character of my own story.
1: <laughs> do you remember that first run? Like how vivid are those memories of when you oh, put got on you. shoes and you went out and ran.
0: I do. They weren't even running shoes. I think they were like <laughs> like Teds or something like they were really not even appropriate for running. Um, and I remember having the key, I was, um, in law school at the time and I remember having my car keys in my hand and what I was about to walk out to my car and I just said, I put the car keys back in my pocket and I just went on foot and it was about a 20 minute, 25 minute walk to campus, about a mile, I guess, mile and a quarter. And I have no idea why I did that. But after class, I did the same thing. And I kind of jogged, you know, I had I kept left left my books on campus and I jogged home and it was horrible. Like it didn't, I it wasn't like this Forrest Gump moment where I, you know, was like, yes, now I'm a runner. It was horrible. But I said, I'll be damned if I'm going to prepare to take the bar exam and I can't figure out how to jog a mile. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of became my... My side, side hustle, or, or my my second, my secondary goal, in addition to you know getting through law school.
1: How long before you made this connection between physical activity and your mental health and your mental well-being? Was that immediate, or did you just start no, to kind of see it over time?
0: It wasn't immediate at all. I was you know feeling the, the stresses of law school naturally, and I would have, and I kind of started two, three days a week, four days a week, going on these very short jog slash runs and or walk slash jogs more accurately and I would have flashes of the incident like I would just be at a stop sign and I would think about it and I was also in the midst of preparing to testify at trial so a lot of this stuff was still very present in my day-to-day life Um, and I realized that at by the end of the run I felt more capable and I thought that capability, that little sliver of confidence is something that I have to keep building on if I'm going to get through this. And that, you know, I had some runs where it was the main topic of uh, the main kind of central thought. And then I had some runs where I didn't think about it at all. And then eventually, you know, as the years went by, I thought about that experience less and less, but it was really, really, really running that got me through that tr- the trial phase, certainly it really is a lot for a young a very young woman to
1: handle for anybody to handle but you were really just a kid but it does also say something don't you think about the role of exercise in helping to build resilience and to kind oh my of gosh. overcome yeah
0: without question i mean to say that this changed my life is not hyper a hyperbolic statement you know i literally not only on a cellular level but on a philosophical level um, understood who my capacity for strength and capability in a completely different way, because I started running, um, and then when you add on the distance of an endurance athlete and marathons and ultra marathons, I was like, that's it, I'm unstoppable, <laughs> and I wanted to really, you know, share that passion and that excitement and that feeling of capability with the world. We don't have to take it to extremes, you know. You don't have to run a hundred miles to feel like you're heroic. I mean, when you feel like you're getting into that, there's a level, I think, of friction that is a good friction, good discomfort with uh, workouts. And when we see ourselves through it and we see ourselves to the other side, that there's no price on that. Like you can't overnight, you can't get an overnight delivery (laughs) on that feeling of um, confidence and capability.
1: I've heard you talk about this idea of interrogating fear. Can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about what that means and what kind of fear are we talking about and what does it mean to interrogate fear? (laughs) So I have a very lively
0: visualization practice. Um, I think it comes from spending hundreds of hours out there running alone, um, you know, training for ultras and just the mental gymnastics of what's going on in my, in my mind and what I want to turn the volume up on and what I want to turn the volume down on. And interrogating fear is something that I really started out there training for my first, um, I don't, I think it was, oh, a charity, charity relay in Utah. I was running five, I was training for running to run five marathons in five days, something I'd never done before. And so that imposter syndrome was loud. And it was also around the time that I was had left my law firm. I was kind of plotting this new life. So I was just completely going by this the by instinct and and really jumping up a cliff. So interrogating fear, I when I interrogate fear, I literally envision whatever the fearful thought is, you're not enough, you're not capable, you don't belong here, um, you know, you don't deserve this, whatever accolade, conversation, opportunity, I imagine that that thought, that fearful thought is sitting on the couch with me and I ask it or, or myself, um, you know, what's, what's, what's factual about this? What is just a feeling? What is, how, how, how good could it end up? Um, and I really just start to play that out. And sometimes there are practicalities. Like if I'm preparing for race day and I'm nervous that something's going to go wrong, I play that out and it's like, okay, what if that does happen? What if you do, you know, lose your shoe, you know, something absurd. Uh, And I, and that kind of mental gymnastics exercise allows me to take the charge out of it. And I've taken it so far as to say, like, I put fear on my cereal for breakfast and that's what I eat in the morning, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I don't believe in fearlessness. I actually think that's a harmful concept. I think that we can use the things that we're nervous or feel fear, fearful about. Um, and I think that might be rocket fuel for a hustler. I think it's so interesting because a lot of what you're talking about
1: is really rooted in science. And and there is a problem when you try to kind of quash your fears and not deal with them and push them away. And there's a lot of interest in naming your feelings and identifying the way you're feeling. And that's really what you're talking about. It's a really simple trick but for you, it sounds like that really, you know, you embrace that every day, your fears and the things that, you know, you eat fear for breakfast. I mean, that's something.
0: <laughs> I try to lean into it. You know, I'm not like arbitrarily walking down dark alleys to like test this theory. You know, I, obviously I want to all stay safe out there. But yeah, the the normal day-to-day stuff that that when we're when those feelings of fear are bubbling up, it's usually things that are completely within the landscape of our ability to handle it.
1: So, you know, speaking of things that you have to handle, there was a point in your life where you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So, tell yes. me about that experience. That had to be be a scary thing at first and tell it me was, a little bit more about that.
0: I was already, you know, really, I mean, no pun intended, I was really in my stride. I was running <laughs> running and lifting and I was a, it was very on the eve actually of joining Peloton as one of the first, one of the first instructors, very early days. And a few weeks before joining, I was diagnosed as a type one diabetic. My pancreas produces little to no insulin and it was no, no history in my family. I mean, it was just completely sidelined, um, or I could have been sidelined. Um, but thankfully, uh, I was, I had body awareness. I had really intentional eating habits. Of course I had really intentional movement habits and I just, Thought okay, I need to educate myself. I'm gonna build a team and get as much technology as I have available to me, and figure this out. And that was another moment where I could feel sorry for myself, or I could focus on what I could control. And that was a that was a what turn why me into try me moment for sure. And there were de- there are definitely days <clears throat> when. It's it, you know it's a tightrope walk. I I read a study that it was like the average type one diabetic makes an additional like 150 to 250 decisions a day, just to think like a pancreas, and that is certainly true. Um, but it it shows my ability to rise above every day, all the time, and um, you know I'm a very I'm a very high functioning athlete. <laughs> so let's go.
1: I think it's very inspiring to young women, especially with type one who wanna be athletes and they're worried about maybe not being able to achieve those dreams. And I've spoken with athletes with type one and they often talk about having to be very tuned in to their, their physical body, tuned into how they're feeling. And I think that's actually a really important lesson for people who don't have type one because so often we we don't listen to our body and we don't listen to how we're feeling in the moment. Would you agree that it makes you more mindful of your physical state and your mental state? Having yeah, I mean, this I do vigilant.
0: I would say yeah, you have you have no choice. But I but I did because I was already on the on that. It, I was already looking at my life through that lens because you don't get to the end of an ultra marathon without having that awareness of like how is this food affecting me? Am I lethargic? Am I fatigued? Am I energized? Um So I'm kind of always having that conversation with myself, and now it, it's it's, you know, it's really medically required for me to have that understanding Um, and, you know, use the data points that are available to me with with glucose monitors and stuff. So talk to me about Swagger Society.
1: What is this? plan.
0: (laughs) Swagger Society is a lifestyle membership club that I am so excited to roll out very soon. It's um, The membership is going to be tied to Web3, so digital assets are going to unlock the membership. And I've always believed that we wear invisible crowns. And this is really a, a, a membership club for folks who have a growth mindset and want to optimize every area of their life and self-define. What a goal, a figurative or literal finish line looks like, and meet a group of like minded individuals in real life events and virtual events, access to me, unpacking the superhero toolkit I've been developing for, you know, 20 years. <laughs> I've, I've, of course, infused this into my books and my masterclass. And this is an opportunity with a small group of folks to go deeper. So that's, that's Swagger Society. So why did you pick Web3 for this? What was the thinking behind that? You know, I've been building community on Web2 platforms like the Facebooks and the Instagrams for over a decade. And, the, the you know, we can only go so far in building community in those spaces, at least in holding co- robust and dynamic conversations in those spaces, I think. Um, they're fragmented either buried in comments or DMs. And what we're building for the Swagger Society site is an opportunity to really go deeper. And for the first time in unprecedented ways, use web three technology to have more dynamic and robust conversations. And and it it takes a lot of the friction out of it. And I do believe it's the future. I think that we're going to be using digital assets for all kinds of things to make our lives easier. Um, So I'm not frankly, is interested in the technology. Like, I don't care how my phone works. I just want to use it. So I'm right. excited for kind of the conversation around Web3 to, to you know, slowly get to that point where it's the utility and the community that we're focused on. Um, but yeah, it it felt like, yeah, sure, I could probably mail out plastic membership cards, but that feels, <laughs> uh, that feels jaded. So another favorite topic, uh, motherhood.
1: So you have a daughter. How old is she? She's two. And you're expecting another child? I am, yes. Pregnant with my second. (laughs) So tell me about fitness and exercise and movement, not just while you're pregnant, but while you're pregnant and taking care of a toddler. Because it's different the second time,
0: right? Um it's going faster. It's different in that <laughs> it's going faster, but thankfully, you know, knock on all the surfaces. I am feeling great and I'm, I have not lost any steam. I'm very grateful for that, but yeah, certainly there's, we're a lot busier. The, <laughs> the days are, they're, are compressed in terms of what we need to get done. So it's a lo- it's less focus on, you know, any individual ache or pain. Thankfully I haven't had any of that, but, um, I'm grateful. I feel good. I'm strong. I consider myself an athlete who happens to be pregnant. I focus on what I'm capable of. I focus on, um, you know, boundaries around my energy and time and intentional yeses and using my no to protect those yeses.
1: (laughs) So is motherhood the reason you wrote children's books? Is that what got you into writing, writing for children?
0: So I've written strong baby, strong mama, and strong baby. Most recently released strong baby, um, strong mama. I wrote when I was pregnant with my with my daughter, who's now two, and strong baby was really a celebration of the strength in little ones. Uh, I see. you know, in observing Athena's first steps and her crawls and squats, I'm like, oh my gosh, these are movements that I literally (laughs) program in my Peloton classes. She's an innate athlete. And I want her, I don't want her to have to wait until she's 20 something years old to realize that strength. You know, so whether she picks up a a formal sport or not. I want her and her playmates to have a love of movement that is really innate. Um, and for her to, to navigate and determine, but I've really infused the books with the mantras that I live my life by. And I think that it's possible for kids to kind of, to pick up that, that feeling and that understanding of strength and resiliency, even from a really young age. So how would
1: you infuse that? Like, what what's your advice to new parents or to parents who have, you know, middle school kids or high school kids, how do you help young people include movement in their life? I think if I had a, advice to my younger self, you know, I sort of let life get in the way um, of just taking care of myself sometimes. And how do you teach
0: children to make movement a priority? I mean, I think, especially with young kids, it starts with play. It's giving them the freedom to move <laughs> on their own terms, you know, in in safe environments, of course. But yeah, it definitely play is is movement often, um, or it certainly involves movement often. And I, model, they absorb a lot by watching what we do. You know, it's incredible. Just this morning, I was doing mobility exercises in my living room, and Athena comes up and she says, mama, we're stretching, you know, and it's like, she's doing her own little random thing in the corner. But yeah, of course, you know, and there's no, um, there's no, there's no right way to do it. Right. I think it's just encouraging that freedom and that play and certainly, and then modeling it, you know, she knows that when I'm lacing up and I'm getting on the bike, like that's the Peloton bike, that's mommy's time. And I think it's important for her to know that this I have, I must do this. I choose to do this so I can take care of you. And, um, you know, if all goes well, she'll develop her own approaches to that same concept of self-care. So, you know,
1: we've come through three years of pandemic living and the pandemic was very transformative for a lot of people. They discovered Peloton, they discovered exercising at home. Where do you think this is going for people? How do you kind of keep that momentum that people establish now that, you know, People are kind of back to a more normal life. Do you think movement and Peloton and you know exercise? How do you how do you kind of keep that front and center in your life?
0: <laughs> well, it's a lifestyle for me. Right. Uh, you know, I think consistency. I think when you realize that you are that more patient partner, or you are you do have more energy for the meeting, or you know that la- la- very last thing on your to do list, you're consistent with your movement practice. And what Peloton unlocks is the ability to do it you know, at you know, with access to a screen, you know, with our app or access to the hardware, the ease with which you're able to access really dynamic content is, I mean, I I literally use something, a Peloton product every single day. Um, And that's in addition to yes, running outside and doing, you know, I think there's a hybrid approach to, to how we're going to continue to move as athletes. Uh, But I just, you know, recently did my book tour for Strong Baby and, you know, I was in a myriad of different hotel gyms and without fail, whether it was at five o'clock in the morning or 10 p.m. at night, getting my workout in, there were people in there using the Peloton app to get their workouts in. So I think that, you know, having that athletic partner, feeling like you're part of a team, a family, so to speak, um, is really, really powerful. That's not going anywhere. We're rooted in community. And I honestly believe that we have the best fitness programming on the planet.
1: So we, we need to wrap up, but I just want to ask you, uh, what do you, you know, there's so many people who are inspired by you, who follow you. What do you want to leave them with when you think about movement and the role of movement in our lives? Like what is just sort of You know, one thing they can think about every day when they're trying to, you know, just be healthier and move more. What do you want them to think
0: about? Start small. (laughs) It doesn't need to involve sweeping changes of every area of your life, but movement is a keystone habit. When you prop that up and you prioritize that moment for your own self-care, you are contributing to other areas of your life, whether it's your sleep hygiene, your, your, um, fueling habits. And I want folks to optimize movement because you are so worthy. You're worthy of the love that you give to others. And I think sometimes we're putting ourselves so low on the totem pole on that to-do list. And what if you put prioritized yourself as one-of-one limited edition? I think that you're going to find that you have so much more capacity for all the other ways you want to show up in the world. So treat yourself like one-of-one limited edition and schedule your workout and keep that promise to yourself. Because when we keep those promises to ourselves, I really see our lives change.
1: Well, I think that's actually a a fabulous note to end on. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Robin, for being here today on Washington Post Live.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.